Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of The Flicks. Today, we are here with BBC Radio Gloucestershire presenter, Joe Darren. Hi, Joe. Hello to you both. Nice to talk to you. So, Joe presents a wonderful science show called Joe Darren's Beautiful Universe, and it's an incredibly informative and entertaining science show. Joe, for our listeners, would you like just to say a few more details about the show? Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. So I started it oh, back in October 2018, and it's a mix of arts and science because I've always had a, a passion for arts, the humanities, theatre, history. But as a youngster, I was interested in science as well. But like a lot of people, sort of felt that I had to choose one path or another and went down very much the humanities route, doing an English literature degree, ending up working in radio. But as a child, I remember my aunt pretending that we were flying off to the moon when I was about eight years old. And that's what sort of first sparked my interest and love of space. And at school, I was always interested in science. I always wanted a chemistry set. I still have have never been bought one, sadly. Um, But but it was one of those things where it was a subject I enjoyed, but I didn't probably maybe get as much enjoyment out of it as I did some of the the more arts-based subjects. So fast forward many, many years into the future. I've been at BBC Radio Gloucestershire, well, since about the year 2000, I would say. I started as a volunteer there and then a member of staff since 2003. Over the last few years, I've been covering different events for for the radio station. And one of those was the Chapman Science Festival. And I've been doing that for about the last five years, I would say. And it was through speaking to people there that I kind of got this idea that actually, why do we sort of think of science as this subject that we did at school? Why don't we see it in the same way that we see the arts? It's just part of culture. And it was in 2016, it was at the festival in 2016, when I had the privilege of talking to Tim Peake live in space. He was on the International Space Station. It was a couple of weeks before his return back to Earth after his six-month mission there. And they beamed that last press conference from the Cheltenham Science Festival. So in this big kind of planetarium-shaped tent in the middle of Imperial Gardens on one of the hottest days of the year, I think, that year, in the middle of June. I think that's what really reignited my interest and my love of space and also got me thinking maybe I could do a a show that encompassed arts as well as science because it hadn't really been being done before there are plenty of art shows out there and of course there are some very good science shows as well but arts and science something that you know even my editor at the time took a bit of convincing and all these things they take a bit of time to happen but eventually it became a radio program in October 2018 um, has run thus far for 77 episodes on a weekly basis um, it's currently mm-hmm. off air because of the um, the pandemic and we've got temporary schedules but I've been sharing various highlights online in a sort of a podcast form and various other bits and pieces from the show are going across the output on the radio station what happens going forward I'm not quite sure at this stage but I'm certainly looking at options as to well you know where I go with the program because because so passionately about it. This cross-section of arts and science is something that I absolutely love and people enjoy listening to. So watch this space, I think, is, is what I should probably say on that one at the moment. We hope it does come back, because it is really good, really entertaining. And as you say, you have some fantastic guests on the show as well. Well worth tracking down for anybody who hasn't listened to it before. You mentioned the Cheltenham Science Festival, just before we go and talk about films. This year, again, because of COVID, it all went online. And you were involved in that. And how did that go? Yeah, well, that was interesting, Jeff, because back in March, when everything started being cancelled, there was that one week in March, wasn't there, when when the world just seemed to change overnight. And the Cheltenham Science Festival was one of those casualties. And I'll be completely honest, it's my favourite week of the year since doing it for the last five or six years. Every year, I get so excited about covering it. Last year, we even did a live recording of my show, Joe Darren's Beautiful Universe, on stage with a panel of four brilliant guests. So it's it's very special to me. And for well, that's it. You know, that's no festival this year. And then they announced about a month or so later, we're going to put it online. So done in a different way, rather than having lots of different events that you can choose, or this is on at this time, and then this is on at the same time. It was a linear program. So it ran from, I think it was 10 o'clock in the morning until eight o'clock at night, across the six days that the festival would normally be on. And they streamed everything, mostly via YouTube. And I know they've kept it up there, I think, for a few weeks. I think you've got to about the beginning of July to still go back and see some of the events, which is brilliant. They did it all for free. And I know they set up a crowdfunder, which is going quite well, I believe. So I said, well, you know, if the festival's still going ahead, I normally cover it 
can I still do it in some way? And my job at the station has, has changed and as, as has most people's really, because normally I'd be going out interviewing people and covering events. And of course, most events aren't happening and we can't go out yeah. and see people. We sort of are moving to, to being able to do some face-to-face interviews with various health and safety forms and microphones on long poles and that sort of thing. But one thing you can do is uh, what, what we call a simulrec. So you can um, interview somebody, maybe just chat to them via the phone, but you record your contribution on a microphone similar to what I'm talking to you on today. Um, or you can do it via a mobile phone if you've got a smartphone with a voice recorder or something like that and you basically match up the two recordings so people in the science communication community luckily a lot of them have their own home studios they were very up for chatting so I was given a couple of days and uh, ultimately we also did a special one-off edition of my show as well to bring a highlights program all together and I think I interviewed about 23 people who were involved in the festival which I I think there were about 65 events altogether. So that was quite good going. About a quarter of the programme, I think, we managed to cover. I got something in every single programme across Radio Gloucestershire, across the whole of the festival. And as I say, did this special programme on the Sunday evening, which was a highlights uh, special, which, again, you can hear online at the moment. It's very different talking to people when you can't see them face to face. That's something one of my guests actually said that. He said, it's not the same. You know, it's great that we find these ways around things. But that face-to-face contact that you have, and I think people, people that come to the festival, they get to chat in the green room and just catch up with other friends that they might not see from one year's end to the next. Cheltenham is almost like the annual general meeting, I think, for scientists and science communicators. And so it is different because you haven't got, you can't look into somebody's eyes, you don't get the body language cues, but it was good to still be able to do it. And everybody was very up for chatting and using different technology and being very accommodating because normally, you know, i tootle into the green room and pop a microphone into somebody's nose and do an interview and off I go this was much more a case of a a bit of a a timetable and getting them to send audio to me and that sort of thing Um, but I think yeah it went really well it was incredibly well received and you know to be honest I think when you've done three months in in our case at the radio station of of temporary emergency schedules with four-hour program blocks which is a long time for presenters to be on air a lot of yeah. people being on the phone, which, you know, ideally you don't really want to have lots of telephone interviews, but you just do the best you can in the circumstances. The reaction was, wow, we've got audio in quality. We've got interesting guests and we've got something that's not coronavirus, which I think by the yeah. time we get to June, <laughs> people wanted to talk about yeah. something else. And of course, the virus was mentioned in the fact that we're doing this in a different way, in a distance way. And probably one of the biggest things that came out of it was how important, clear, good science communication is at the moment, because mm. we're, we're hearing about science so much. And, you know, there's an awful lot of things that you see on social media that, you know, aren't true. And, and it's a case of those science communicators kind of cutting through all of that. So, yeah, it was a great privilege to do it. And I was chuffed that they could put, still put it on in some capacity. And, and fingers crossed next year, we'll all be back together in Imperial Gardens in Cheltenham. I even went for a walk actually the day before the festival around the gardens and it was so strange not seeing all of the tents there. It was just bizarre, <laughs> yeah, yeah. very bizarre. But yeah, but it was a great it was still great to do it, a different way of doing it, but um at least we at least we got something some sort of science festival this year which was great. I saw your tweets about walking around the um <laughs> the park as well. Yeah, you're you're right. It's just so strange you expect to see tents and everything. You mentioned about highlights being available. Where can people find them? Um, so the, for the Cheltenham Festivals, the actual highlights of the festival itself, they're on Cheltenham Festival's YouTube channel. Most events, I believe, are, are available to see again. I know the Brian Cox one was one that was only available live on the night, but pretty much everything else, apart from workshops, which were done via Zoom, so obviously you had to join those at the time, every other thing is available on a, on a stream. So you just go to the Cheltenham Festival's YouTube channel and you'll find it on there. I've actually got to go back and watch a few events because uh, I saw a few on the first day because I was off that day and I watched the Fame Lab final. That's for me is one of my big tips watch the UK final of fame lab which is a science communication competition for early career researchers who are often PhD students or people who've already got their PhDs talking about their area of scientific research and they have to communicate it in three minutes and they're judged on content clarity and charisma by judges and I've judged the children's version, the school's version of this over the last few years, Fame Lab Academy. And it doesn't ever get any easier because they're so good. <laughs> yeah. They're incredibly good. But the winner, she was just amazing. She did her talk in the form of poetry and it was all about autism and fake news, actually. And in fact, I've just done a follow up interview with her that's going to go out on BBC Radio Gloucestershire uh, quite soon. Just talking about how she feels about winning because she now goes on to represent the UK in the international final of Fame Lab, which will be held in the autumn. 
I think the format is still to be decided because I think it's going to be part of the Literature Festival. Um, but obviously lots of, of things I'm sure to be decided between now and then. But yeah, just amazing. If you want to be you know, have your mind blown by these incredible science communicators, I would definitely watch that. There were so many things. There was, there was a family program. Every day they had these family shows. And there's one that I know Maggie Darren Pocock did about the solar system, which I need to catch up on because anything to do with space, I'm always very excited by. So, yeah, so that's on the Chantland Festival's YouTube channel. And then the highlights program that I did, that's available on BBC Sounds. And so that's on there for 30 days because that did have a bit of music in it. But I have also put a shortened podcast version up, which is just by if you look for my name and type in BBC Radio Gloucestershire, I've got my own web page and there's highlights of my show going up to about episode 19 I think is where I've kind of paused at for now and I'll resume doing some of those highlights in the next few weeks and then there's the highlights of you can hear me talking to all of the fame lab finalists there's a, there's a piece of, of that on there and then there's about 45 minutes of my highlights program from the Cheltenham Science Festival where you hear from every single person that I interviewed all 23 guests they're all in there in the in bite-sized format lovely well brilliant that's my evening sorted <laughs> <laughs> Staying with science and what we're going to talk about now is your five favourite science-based films. Now, are mm. these in any order, Joe, or are they random? They're kind of random. I'm going to end with a film that I only watched last night, which is uh, shows how recent I've seen it. And it's a film I should have watched many, many years ago and hadn't. Um, so that's a bit of a surprise for you. We're going to start with probably the, the film that I remember my earliest science or science fiction based film. And that's that's kind of, yeah, we start at the earliest film I saw and, and end with the most recent, although not necessarily in chronological order. OK, so the first one is E.T. This is a film, I don't know if I remember seeing it at the cinema. I, my memory of this seeing it is probably seeing it at home with my parents. And we're going back, what, was 82, if I'm not mistaken? 82, it was, yeah. 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 And I, Christmas I mean, 82, it came out. Was it Christmas? Was it really? Well, I mm. was only a, a little tiny dot in 1982 because I was born in 81. So I don't remember seeing it then, but it would have been a few years later, sometime in the 80s. And it still makes me cry. Even the end of it still makes me cry. Um, and the scene on the little bicycle is E.T. and Elliot, wasn't it, when he, he goes yeah, off on yeah. the bike? Um, and, of course, Drew Barrymore was in it. That was probably one of her first roles, I would imagine, because she's gone on to do, to do many different things. And the, and the music in it as well. John Williams, I'm confident in saying it was, it was another John Williams score, wasn't it, E.T.? Yeah. I don't think it's aged really, although saying that I haven't seen it for quite a few years, but it, I remember watching it a lot as a child. So, like, yeah, that was probably my first introduction to anything kind of science and space and science fiction based, I suppose. Did the characters, obviously you've got the Keys characters and the government trying to capture E.T. As a child, I mean, did you find that frightening? I think I did a bit, actually. Yeah, I I just, I wanted E.T. to be safe. I mean, obviously, we know E.T. wanted to, you know, classically phone home. But yeah, I, I definitely remember thinking, yeah, as a child, actually, it is, it is a bit scary in places. And um, I, I, say, I certainly remember crying when I watched it, and I probably would still cry if I watched it today. Yeah, no, no, it is excellent. And what's clever about the film, the last part of it, the, the finale, I think it's about 10 minutes long, hardly anybody speaks. It's all yeah. done through the visuals and through music, and yet it has such an emotional power. It's really clever, isn't it, when films do that? And in fact, another film we're going to talk about in a minute, there is a, a part of that film that's got a large part of silence in it. I think silence can be quite underrated in films, but it's so powerful and it really, really draws you in, doesn't it? Yeah, it's that old thing in movies of show, don't tell. And when they just show and it's done very well, it's so powerful. But I'm with you. E.T. is one of my favourite films of all yeah. time. So uh, after that, I'm looking forward to number two. <laughs> <laughs> well, number two is one that we spoke about on the radio. And again, it's a film I only probably saw in the last six months or so. I, w I tell you, I remember watching it. I watched it on an August bank holiday at my friend's house. And it's 2001, A Space Odyssey. Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. 
I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the part against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. All right, Hal. I'll go in through the emergency airlock. Without your space helmet, Dave, you're going to find that rather difficult. Hal, I won't argue with you anymore. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. A film I'd had in my DVD collection for ages and I'd, I don't know why I hadn't seen it before it was one of those films you, you feel like you probably have seen it but now I've when I watched it I thought no, I would I would, rem- would have remembered seeing this film I mean again the music I think is such a big part of the film I remember if, if either of you went to see the exhibition that, that was at the design museum the Stanley Kubrick exhibition no, no I, I missed that that was the global world traveling exhibition uh, wasn't it when it, we went all around the world and each, each museum got to add a bit of their own stuff to oh, right. the uh, to the exhibition, so I saw the TV program about it and mm. enjoyed it tremendously. It was just packed with information, oh, things I didn't know about. So much. I spent probably like three hours there. It was such a big exhibition, and I mean, a lot of the films I hadn't, I hadn't, and still haven't seen. But then when we got to two thousand and one, that was one of the biggest sections, and you felt like you were walking onto the film set. I, I mean, there's so many things I love about it. But part, part of it feels very current because of the technology and the video calling that to me yeah. feels like it's yeah. <laughs> it's a film that's of today um as so i mentioned the music there's the part where the astronauts just kind of floating almost out in space and that's where it's really silent isn't it all you hear is the breathing i find that really hypnotic yeah. there's that lovely shot where they're traveling across the moon and they're in the little sort of spaceship that goes across the moon and you see it come into focus from the distance and then it passes you by and goes off the other side of the screen and there's no sound at all because you're Mm. on the moon with no atmosphere and it was just that was the moment that just really captured me when I saw it first saw the film I thought wow they've got all of this right and then they go and find the, the monolith on the moon and I just I just think it's one of those movies that you I just keep going back to it's just so good and you know the ending the really ending doesn't make a lot of sense. The ending doesn't make a lot of sense. I was going to ask you both about this because I know we spoke about this on the radio before, didn't we? I'm still a bit confused by the ending. What do you think happens? In Arthur C. Clarke's, the book of it, which he wrote after the film, yeah. in the very beginning, he says, when the caveman or the creature learns the power of weapons, it ends with, he doesn't know what he'll do next, but he'll think of something. So so the aliens show him an environment he understands rather than their environment because they don't want to, I suppose, freak him out too much. But they then sort of learn about the aging of humans and they create out of him the next evolution being the star child. And the last words in the books, he doesn't, you know, as he's going back towards Earth, he says he doesn't know what he'll do next, but he'll think of something. So uh, to me, it's mankind had got so far with weapons and it was on the verge of destroying itself so the aliens knew at that point that they should be able to find the monolith on the moon because of the magnetic fields and that would lead them on to the stargate and if their timing's right they can save humanity by creating a new evolution that's what it was to me Um. yeah Uh, and the other thing being that when he's in that strange hotel room yes. environment. He, comes, all, he just gets older, doesn't he, within a few seconds. Yeah. I think the aliens there don't understand the concept of linear time, so it's jumping all over the place time-wise, mm-hmm. and I, I like that, and I thought that was really interesting. But, yes, the ending is... In the in the book, Jeff, remind me, I think they launch a... There's a nuclear weapon strike, weapon. yeah. Yeah. And the star child annuls it or, or cancels it out, moving away from weapons to a, a more peaceful society. Well, the next stage of evolution. The other thing is, it, towards the end, is that scene that's kind of really trippy, isn't it, when you watch it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. That's the one, one scene uh, Jeff doesn't like. No, I hate that. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, let's fly over Scotland and reverse the negative. Oh, these <laughs> are all these alien planets. Nice one, Stanley. Caught us there. Uh, yeah. No, it still looks like Scotland. Mm. <laughs> and then we've got to talk about how, of course, the, the, the computer that's sort of sentient in, in a sense, isn't it? Yeah, and misunderstood. Mm. <laughs> I, IBM, one letter further on, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. H A L I B M. Yeah, yeah. That's just a coincidence, he said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Definitely ahead of its time on on the robot. It was just before the moon landings, wasn't it? The the Apollo eleven moon landing. I think it was what sixty eight. Yeah, yes. So that's what saved the film because we hadn't. The the film wasn't a big financial success until the moon landings happened. And then again, we're fortunate. Is cinema rollouts were different then. It would roll out city by city in America, and also almost city by city in the UK as well. And because it took so long, and again, there's no DVDs, no no videos, no nothing like that back then. The film was still in the cinemas when they landed on the moon, and it just give a resurgence in the box office. Yeah, now it's just a classic, isn't it? I mean, we, we, you know, we've talked about this. What Absolutely. makes the film a classic? I think Absolutely, that's got to be yeah. in my top ten of of classic films. Well. Two great ones. What's number three then, Joe? Number three is Hidden Figures. Y'all gonna end up unemployed riding around in this pile of junk. You're welcome to walk the 16 miles. Or oh, sit in the back of the bus. Like it me up. You have identification on them? NASA, sir. NASA? I had no idea they hired There are quite a few women working in the space program. At least I can do is give y'all an escort. Three Negro women are chasing a white police officer down the highway in 1961. That is a God-ordained miracle. In 14 days, astronauts will be here for training. And we're shooting a human into space, and it's never been done before. Space test group needs a computer. Catherine's the gal for that. She can handle any numbers you put in front of her. This is about inventing the math, because without it, we're not going anywhere. Yes, sir. I don't know if I can keep up in that room. Just make that pencil move as fast as your mind does. We have liftoff. We all get there together, we don't get there at all. In the fight of our lives, people. My gals are ready. We can do the work. More than 50 million Americans watching. I got a warning light. Go find Catherine. Colonel Glenn. There's a real fireball outside. It's getting a little hot in here. Fabulous. It's such a good film, isn't it? I, I remember seeing this oh, one at the cinema uh, with a friend of yes. mine. And um, when you think about the space race and you think about Apollo and all of the missions that have gone before, I, I do think you have a perception of it being very male-dominated, very white male-dominated, to be honest. And there are so many stories, I'm sure, that are still to be uncovered. And this was just such a good example of that. Three women who, who I confess I didn't know a huge amount about, the role that they played. And I think the thing that can be easy to forget sometimes when it comes to space, space exploration, something I've spoken a lot about on the show, is the human side of space exploration. Because without the humans and without the kind of the, the thought, the imagination, those, these things wouldn't have happened. And I think you can sometimes get very caught up with all the technology and all the amazing things. And it can seem very big and epic. And, and of course, in, in many of these films that we see these portrayals of, it is that. But actually, I love the human side of the stories just as much. And this is something that absolutely came out in, in this film. It's Yeah, when, I haven't seen it for a little while, actually, um, but absolutely loved it when I saw it in the cinema. One of my all-time favourites, I would say now. It's, it is a tremendous film. It's a tremendous ensemble cast. People like Octavia Spencer were just tremendous in it. It's just not a false note in the film. And so much detail they got in there. Like when John Glenn is there and he said, you know, get the get the lady who did the numbers, which is actually spot on historically accurate, apparently. Yes. Uh, just wanted the right people to do the job, regardless of sex or race. Back then, you see so much about the civil rights movement that was to come. This sort of working together and the breaking down of these racial barriers. And in a film that's so hypnotic through its science and storytelling, 
is amazing. You're, you're mm. right. It's, it is one of the great films of the 21st century. Things I didn't probably even fully realise is when you, you see the different characters, say uh, Catherine Johnson, uh, that she's got to go across to the bathroom from the, the room that she's working yes, in where she's doing yes. all the calculations, but she's got this massive trek across car park after car park. I'm thinking, how is this even possible that this happened? And it's, you know, this is within many of our lifetimes, isn't it? To yeah. think that, you know, yes. that this is how it was for, for people. I was... I was just shocked and appalled, really, when I and when I realised that. And even down to the the dress sense, you know, you've got to wear high heels and all these sort of things. I mean, it's yeah. just insane. And the coffee pot incident that that really just made me so cross. And I thought, here's the brightest people on the planet, and they've still got all this prejudice they're dragging along with them yeah. into space. And I just thought I felt so downhearted mm-hmm. at that point. But it all comes good in the end. It does. There are uh, heartbreaking moments Cos- in it, aren't there? But yeah, it's, it, yeah. yeah, at least there, there is a, a happy ending. Yeah. yeah, I thought Kevin Costner was good as well. It's nice to see him back on the, mm. you know, taking a, a decent role. Yeah, it was good. It's a, just an excellent film. Excellent yeah, film. again, it's an ensemble cast. You know, yeah. you, as I say, you've got Octavia Spencer, you've got Kevin Costner, you've got Mahershala Ali in there in a small role as well, and yeah. look how successful he is now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, and, and Jim Parsons, and it just works. Wonderful, wonderful film. Whew. That's on my list to watch again. Well done, Joe. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Joe, you're on a roll. Yeah, you're on a roll. Wow. I'm excited for number four. Right. Well, this one follows on in a way, really, from Hidden Figures, and um, certainly chronologically in terms of the films I've seen, because I saw this one in, I think it was 2018 it came out. I'm pretty certain it was a couple of years ago. And I and I started doing the programme at this point. It might have been only 2019. Um, I started doing the show at this point, so I remember talking about it on the programme. And this is First Man. What you didn't say when you get onto the moon. A lot of things have to go right before that happens. We need to fail down here so we don't fail up there. This isn't just another trip, Neil. You're not just going to work. We got backfire! They're gone. What are the chances this is the last time the boys are going to see you? Good luck. We have serious problems. First man. We spoke very much last year about the 50th anniversary of, of landing humans on the moon. But this film, cinematically, was unlike anything that I'd personally seen before. I felt like I was there with Neil Armstrong in many of the scenes, actually, right back to when he was a pilot. But certainly the the, the mission to the moon, it just, it's, I was, I guess, in the way that technology has moved on and what you can do in cinemas now, there was just something about it that made me think that I was right there with him. It was fantastic. We had a an at the flicks day out to Aww. the uh, oh, IMAX in London. Yeah, the, the, uh, the largest IMAX screen in Europe. We were a bit too close. <laughs> I think if we'd been right at the back, we'd still have been too close. That is such a powerful in-your-face film. And we were just in this giant IMAX. And it was just, when it finished, I sat down and just waited for everybody to leave, I was exhausted. Mm. It's absolutely exhausted. It's very visceral, and it, you, as you say. Really are drawn into it. It is the the, op- the opening scene where he's trying to to land the uh, the space plane, the X fifteen, and he keeps skipping off the atmosphere, and you're thinking, oh, I know this, you know, I know he must do it, but God, it's so intense. Mm. A great film, great film. So this is the one where I disagree with everybody. <laughs> and, yeah. and Graham knows this because I said it at the time. I don't. Right. Let me just put the historical context of this for me. As a child, I was fascinated and fixated on the Apollo space program. So I followed the whole thing through, you know, from the disaster of Apollo 1 mm. to the triumphs of 11 to the panic of 13. All of these sort of things. I followed everything. One of my favourite documentary films is a film called In the Shadow of the Moon, which is oh, basically film. a talking heads film with all the Apollo yeah. astronauts. Mm-hmm. Uh, oddly, Neil Armstrong didn't take part in that film, but it's a great film. This just didn't work for me. Visually, it's great. I didn't like the way Ryan Gosling paid Neil Armstrong. I think Damien Chazelle as a director can't do emotion. So I didn't have that sense of wonder and awe with the character of Armstrong that I was expecting. I will admit that the sequence where he throws something into a crater was quite moving. Trust me, Joe, I got so much stick going back on that train that night. I from bet everybody you did. Else that was a long train journey, wasn't it? It was a very long train journey, <laughs> and it felt even longer. 
it, it just didn't click for me in the way. And I say I've watched loads of documentaries about Neil Armstrong. I mm. think he's an incredible, very brave, and unflappable human being. Yeah, Gosling just didn't get under the skin of that for me. But I am in the minority. He yeah. is in the minority. Yeah. We did have a huge conversation on the way home. Yeah. I thought Gosling's performance was excellent. I think he caught the the manner of the man, the fact that this was a job to him and he was not going to fail. And the the bit where they're tr- they're coming down to land on the moon and he spots that it's too rocky and he has to go over this over the top of that yeah. crater and fly fly sideways effectively, yeah. which is covered in the um, excellent uh, BBC podcast Thirteen Minutes to the Moon. Oh, yes, they go they go into that in great detail. Yeah, but that piece to me, I I my nails were chewed right down yeah. to the bone. That was just brilliantly done. I, th- I mean, I think I can I can see both sides because I know other people that didn't love it. They they liked parts of it, but a few people had a, had a bit of an issue with the portrayal of Neil Armstrong. I personally learned more about him as a person and some of the personal tragedies without spoiling anything that he went through. But it was interesting when you mentioned In the Shadow of the Moon there because I've interviewed Chris Riley, the filmmaker, and he also made the programme for the BBC about Neil Armstrong after he died. And I saw him give a talk at the British Interfactory Society a few years ago. And then last year, he was at the Cheltenham Science Festival. And we did this interview about about Neil Armstrong, about Apollo 11. And what was interesting was that you're right, that he he didn't want to be a part of, of that particular documentary. And I remember Chris saying to me that some production people would probably have really hounded him to get him to be part of the film, and some did, and he just didn't feel comfortable. I think Neil Armstrong, I get the sense, was a very private person, and all of the kind of the media stuff, as you say, it was a job to him, but I I get the sense he didn't love the media side of it. At that point, I think in his life, he was living a a happy life. He didn't really want to be back in, in the public eye, and he had said respectfully no. And Chris Riley said to me that, you had that choice where you could keep pushing and maybe he would have said, okay, but are you going to get the best out of him? And he felt better that he hadn't pushed him to do something. But that film had opened up doors for him because when it then came to making the the film about Neil Armstrong after he died, which for, for making a documentary film was a very quick turnaround. I think he died in the August and the, the BBC commissioned it and wanted it on at the Christmas time. Very fast turnaround. He was wow. driving across America, kind of phoning people up. And I know that um, Dave Scott was one of the people that had, had he got involved with, with in, in The Shadow of the Moon. And that opened up some doors and they got various people in, involved. And, you know, you, you see him talking to, you know, all you know, different Apollo astronauts and family members and that sort of thing. Um, but it, that was a, yeah, that was a, a really quick turnaround to get that film made. Um, and a lot of that came from, from doing that documentary film. But I enjoyed last year, just going off on a bit of a, a tangent away from First Man, the Apollo 11 film, which was obviously more of a, a documentary film that was out in the cinema, which also kind of, you know, gave you the sense of how much jeopardy there was on that mission. So I've enjoyed watching so many different films about Apollo 11 now since, since the anniversary. And, and one little thing that you, you probably are aware of is that the suit and prop maker in the first man film is a man in America called Brian Magata. He makes all sorts of amazing things. And he made some of the early face suits. Now, the, the one that I got to try on isn't one that Ryan Gosling wore. I was a little bit disappointed when I found out that Ryan Gosling hadn't actually been wearing it. But nevertheless, this was, I think, the prototype. This was the first space suit. And I got to wear it at the Chapman Science Festival last year um, <laughs> because uh, luckily I know the person who owns it, uh, which is the, the TV presenter and writer Dallas Campbell. He owns the spacesuit now. He brought it to the festival and we did an interview months and months beforehand at the British Interplanetary Society, actually up in the library there, um, about the spacesuit and, and just about spacesuits in general. And again, we were talking about hidden figures before, how there's these incredible stories from Apollo about these seamstresses that used to make, you know, ladies' underwear that were the people that were employed to, to you know, sew the spacesuits because they obviously were, you know, very good at working with mixed material. Again, there's some great stories that, that you know, that come out of Apollo that you probably aren't, people aren't always necessarily aware of. Anyway, we're doing this big interview about spacesuits and we were talking about this particular one. You had it all laid out and I got to sort of have a look at it. And I said, well, when you come to Cheltenham, do you think I might be able to wear it? And he said, oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that would be okay. Seeing as it's you, you can you can have a go. 
So it was on the last day of the festival in a in a tiny broom cupboard. I mean, I'm sure the festivals won't like me saying that there's a broom cupboard at the town hall, but it, they'll say it's a dressing room. It's more of a, of a broom cupboard with all sorts of other props and things from people like Stefan Gates, who does talks at the Science Festival, but he's got loads of props and dry ice and all sorts of things you're probably not even meant to be in a room with. But we're all left in this room and there were oh, there were musicians that had come in there at one point. It was quite cramped in there and you need a bit of space to lay out a spacesuit and then get into it. And you've got to wear what I would call like yoga clothes, really, to be able to get into it because it's, it's quite a snug fit. And uh, and then you have to, I got to wear the Snoopy cap as well, which is probably the most exciting bit. I couldn't get the gloves <laughs> on. The gloves would, in my hands just weren't quite the right size. They were too hot or something to get them on. But yes, getting to wear the replica of Neil Armstrong's spacesuit, not worn by Ryan Gosling, but nevertheless made by the person who made <laughs> many of the props and costumes for the first man film was definitely a career highlight. It's my pinned tweet on my Twitter feed. It's not going yes, anywhere until yeah. somebody gives me another spacesuit to wear. I don't think is that likely in the immediate future. Yeah, so that's quite. So that's another reason why I'm quite fond of first man because I sort of have this slightly strange connection with it. <laughs> so- that's the question on that. It's something that's always intrigued me. It said if you're claustrophobic, wearing a spacesuit is one of the worst things you can do. Is that true? Well, the spacesuit itself, I found okay, but I am claustrophobic. And one thing I didn't do is I didn't put on what I call a fishbowl, the bubble helmet, <laughs> because um, I think I would get claustrophobic in it. And it was funny, actually, going back to the 2016 Cheltenham Science Festival, the year that, say, we did the Tim Peake press conference, the day before, this is a kind of a little bit of radio inside, you know, gossip for you. Uh, the day before, they'd said there's going to be this press conference with Tim Peake. It's all announced quite, quite late on because it was, you know, big secret. And uh, people at work were saying to me, oh, you know, we'll get some, get some recording about this. Yeah, that's fine. We'll be covering the press conference. And they said, oh, can we get a video with somebody? They've gone very big on video at that time, you know, with social media. Can we get a video with somebody talking about the press conference? I thought, oh, I don't know. Who am I going to get to talk about the press conference? And, and it was funny because this is where I've almost sort of come full circle with this spacesuit. This was the first festival that I met Dallas at, and we did our interview about the festival and various other things. And he said, oh, I'm going to be hosting the Tim Peaks press conference. Oh, that's great, he said. And he said, if there's anything I can do for you, you know, any, any help, because I know what it's like working in radio and I work in TV, you know, often if you're running around on your own, it's great to, you know, if I can help with anything, let me know. I was like, wow, people in TV are not normally that helpful. You know, this is great. I said, oh, that's really kind. Thanks very much. So when I get this message, oh, can you find a way to do a video? I do know a TV presenter that might be willing to help me. So I, I, I made contact with him. I said, would you mind doing this video? Oh, yeah, no, no, it's fine. And there was this lady there from the Royal Photographic Society. That's how the interview had actually been set up, because he was talking about a photographic exhibition that was part of the Science Festival. Again, this is the, the arts and science. That's where it all started fizzing away in my head. And this lady was there from the RPS. And um, he'd got this other spacesuit, a, a Sockle spacesuit, so the sort that Tim Peake wore when he went off to the International Space Station. And he's got that on like a long-term loan, I think, from somebody. So he actually has two spacesuits in his collection, which I'm very jealous about. Oh, anyway, wow. he sort of got this thing in his big suitcase. And he said, oh, I can bring the spacesuit with me if you want to. And we'll do the thing in the gardens. And I remember me saying it was a very hot summer. So it was very hot in Imperial Gardens. He said, oh, you'll get out in the spacesuit. And uh, he said, we can all demonstrate the spacesuit if you want. I went, oh, OK, then. So fair enough. So we did a little bit of a piece to camera about the, the press conference with Tim Peake the next day. Brilliant. And then he said, oh, we can do something with the spacesuit. And I think, wow, this is too good an opportunity to miss, isn't it, really? And he sort of looked at me and he said, you might be a bit tall for it. And I'm five foot eight. Um, actually, I wasn't too tall for the, the Ryan Nagata, the Neil Armstrong spacesuit. I possibly would have fitted in the soccer one, but it, but it was a female one rather than a, a male one. It, it was actually slightly smaller. Um, but I am quite claustrophobic. And I was also wearing a dress and high heels. And I thought, I'm not getting <laughs> undressed in the middle of Imperial Gardens for anybody. So luckily, this lovely lady from the Photographic Society. That's a very different video. <laughs> yeah, that's much more specialist. Um, <laughs> this lovely lady from the Royal Photographic Society, whose name I now can't remember, which is terrible, because she was such a nice lady. It will come back to me at some point. Anyway, she was there. And um, she just thought she was having a nice day out from the RPS and going to the Chapman Science Festival and getting a nice lunch in the green room. Little did she know that she was going to be getting half dressed in the middle of the gardens in a spacesuit because she was wearing sort of leggings and um, a floaty top over like a vest top so actually she was kind of wearing the 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 right sort of skin tight clothing and she was quite short so she was quite nimble to get into this spacesuit Suzanne that was her name anyway so she so we said I thought that's great well I'll film it and Dallas you explain what's going on and then this lady kind of gets in the spacesuit oh my goodness it looked like getting it was like getting into a sleeping bag is what it looked like where you kind of get can't quite get your legs in the right place and then I think she did have a helmet thing to go on. And he was saying to her, you've got to be really careful. It's really expensive. Don't, you know, don't touch anything. Don't get your nails caught on anything. And she had a necklace on. I think she had to take that off. And 
anyway, this poor lady, she gets into this boiling hot spacesuit and then she kind of has to put the helmet on on top of it. And I was just there thinking, oh my goodness, I'm so claustrophobic. I'm so glad that I'm a bit too tall to get into this spacesuit because this would not have gone well. Anyway, <laughs> luckily, you know, fast forward a few years, I, I still didn't wear the helmet. And so, yes, I imagine if you are claustrophobic, you would have to have some sort of hypnotherapy or, or do a lot of meditation to get over that because I certainly wouldn't want to put one of those bubble helmets on, not for any longer than a few seconds anyway. The thing is, we were having photographs taken as well at the, at the festival last year and people would just... No, you just randomly start taking photos of you getting dressed into a spacesuit. I think, sorry, this is slightly private. You can wait until I'm actually dressed before you just start. Away. But you, you know, I've got an insight of what it's like to be a celebrity for sort of five seconds. You know, people just clicking away, taking photos. Of them, and I have no idea whatever happened to them. I've got a few photos that uh, that Theo, one of the press officers at Chantland Festivals took. But there are some professional ones that a professional photographer took, but I've yet to see them. So, yes, yeah, so it, it was a very long-winded question, answer to your question, wasn't it? But, yes, I think if you're a bit claustrophobic, I would, wouldn't suggest dressing up in a spacesuit for fun. No. I'll be honest, you've just not sold it to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just wear the Snoopy cap, Jeff. Well, That'll be all right. You'll be all right just with the Snoopy uh, Yeah, no, I'll do that. I'll do that. Sorry, while we're on this tangent, just one question. The Apollo 11 capsule. Now, I was in the Aeronautic um, Museum in Washington, hmm. and I'm not sure if it was a replica that they had there or the real thing. Do you know? I don't know, actually. I know that in the is it in the Smithsonian? Yes, I yes the that's real, it. Yeah, yeah, the Smithsonian. Yeah, so the real spacesuits are definitely in that museum. Oh yeah, no, I've seen them. Um, yeah, which I would love to see in reality. I don't know about the capsule though. If it's the real one, I know there's a capsule in the Science Museum, which is not Apollo 11, but a different Apollo mission. That I think is a real capsule, and also Tim Peake's capsule that he came back down to Earth in in, in June 2016. His Soyuz capsule that's in the Science Museum with the big the parachute coming out of it because it was there for a temporary display and I think it's there fairly permanently now and I, I think it was Helen Sharman's spacesuit there as well at one time but yeah I don't know the answer to that one I'm afraid because I've, I've never been to America there's so many places I want to go in the world including going to see a, a launch uh, like a well we, we've only seen it recently haven't we an actual launch with actual human beings going off to the space station from American yeah. soil for the first time in in a long time so it's, it feels like it's quite an exciting period of time in in yeah. space and, and space exploration and you know, going back to the moon, while well, 2024 is what they're still saying, I mean, I personally think it's going to get delayed because of everything going on with the pandemic. I think there's the will there for it to for it to happen. So it's in, in, interesting and exciting times that we live in, I think. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I've been fortunate. I've seen two shuttles take off back in the 90s, one of them being John Glenn shuttle when he oh, went up. Oh, wow. Uh, it, was, it was amazing and what was bizarre about it is just so far away you have to be so you know it's a couple of miles away i think they allow you to be and when it takes off this noise hits you and you think has that just exploded and it's just <laughs> the force of this thing taking off is incredible to watch yeah it looks amazing i'm not i've never been been to see one in, in person but i've seen them on the television i know no people who've been to them and they yeah they say the the, the sound and you know, just how close you can kind of, you know, get to some of the, I know people who've been to the ones in Kazakhstan where they kind of have let TV crews get a bit closer than possibly they ought to. But um, I, yeah, I know people who've, who've been to them and uh, that, yeah, oh, it just, just sounds absolutely amazing. I, I, I definitely want to go to, uh, to America and, you know, maybe get to see, get to see one, one day in real life. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah, no, well, at the speed um, Elon Musk is putting mm. uh, rockets up at the minute, if you miss one, you can just wait a couple of days and pick up another yeah, one. Yeah, although talking amazing. of space suit, I was watching the um, the Dragon X launch the other the other day uh, with the two astronauts going up to the International Space Station. I thought, oh, well, they've got the new spacesuits. They look a lot more comfortable than the old ones until you get down to their boots and they look like they're wearing wellies. <laughs> Somebody Have else said that. It? Yes, it's <laughs> unbelievable. I thought. That cannot be part of the space. What? That looks so cheap. And, oh. Well, the little anyway. boots that I wore when I wore the replica of Neil Armstrong's spacesuit, the little boots in there, they've actually got slippers in them. Like I think it might have even been moccasin slippers, but I, I could be wrong if my memory serves me correctly. <laughs> but that, that's what they've got in them. I'm sure that's not what real astronauts wear. They have to have 
you know all sorts of extra sort of coverings yeah. and stuff like that don't they especially to walk on the moon and the uh the special material the that was made system. yeah yeah because yeah. oh, the surface of the moon is you know very abrasive but you know i've been very lucky that I've, i have got to meet a few astronauts and tim peak and then helen sharman and chris hadfield um who was just incredible he was the first astronaut that i ever got to interview um and i've seen a few astronauts speak as well and not actually speak not meet in person or interview um scott kelly was one that i i went to see a talk with him a few years ago he was really inspiring and then also spoken to people um a chap from Cheltenham Peter Cadogan who studied moon rocks which is just amazing to think you know this material that came back from them yeah he's part of the astronomical society and he featured in my there is a documentary actually if you are interested another little plug um I did a special on Apollo 11 last year for the for the BBC and that's still very much available to listen to because it's a it's a documentary um so that's available if again if you go to my webpage you'll see it's via BBC Spines and there's all many of the people I've mentioned um you mentioned the 30 minutes to the moon podcast Kevin Fong who I've I've known for years and I've interviewed on a number of occasions great to talk to him and you know when you talked about Michael Collins, who is the person I would most like to interview, I think. Everybody says Buzz Aldrin, who, of course, I'm not going to sniff at if somebody offers me an interview yeah. with him. But Michael <laughs> Collins, because... You know, he didn't actually get to land on the moon. And he they, they would say he was the loneliest person in the whole of the world at, at that one time yeah. where he was kind of going around the other other side of the moon. And he, I know he's very much interested in that cross-section between arts and science. So, yeah, he's top of my list of people. If I could get to interview, you know, somebody like that, that would be amazing. Um, but, of course, we are losing the Apollo generation now, which is, which yeah, is very sad. sad. I often have to check when I watch films to go, which how many of them, you know, I know there's only you know, 12 men walked on the moon and four of them are still alive. And you just have to keep your fingers crossed they're going to be with us for a little while longer yet i went to a talk on in the shadow of the moon this is in cheltenham quite a few years ago now somebody asked that old question well how do you know they landed on the moon and his answer was brilliant and he said the thing is the russians tracked that mission every step of the way and if for a moment they thought there was something funny going on it would have been everywhere Mm -hmm. but the russians never said a word No, I always find it when people say, I mean, people know how to wind me up if they ever mention anything about fake moon landings or it being a hoax or anything like that. And I was interviewing somebody, uh, well, a year or so ago now, a totally different, it was about gardening, I think. It was nothing to do with anything to do with space, but somehow it came up in the conversation. And this person said, well, do, do you believe then that they landed on the moon? It's not a belief system. It's a fact. They landed on the moon. It's not like, you know, do I believe in this or believe in that? I said, it's not about that. I said, they did land on the moon. It's a fact. And this person started to challenge me. And I said, my question for you is 400,000 people worked on the exactly. Apollo space program over yeah. well over a decade. How do you keep 400,000 people and all their families and friends quiet if it's this big hoax and this big conspiracy? Oh, well, I do believe they landed at some point, just not on that day. your brain just starts to fry but in the end by the end of it I said I've done a documentary oh I might listen to that okay good then could I suggest that you do and people didn't get to that fairly irrational point by rational thought so rational thought isn't necessarily going to get them out of that fixed point (laughs) and that's why I I find conspiracy theories very interesting I know people who have done programs and written books about it and, and find the whole subject really interesting I've interviewed psychologists about conspiracy theories. In fact, I interviewed a, a couple last year at the Science Festival. And one of the things that came out of that is, is the reason why people will believe things like that is because they're trying to make sense of something very big that's happened in the world. And they can't quite believe that just something that big or that awful maybe because there's conspiracy theories about 9-11 about the death of princess diana there's all sorts of conspiracy theories people can't quite believe that something like that would just happen so they have to think that there's a higher being or a a a kind of a a superpower somewhere that's pulling the strings and making it happen and that's from a psychological perspective there's a reason why people do that so yes when it comes to anything to do with with people talking about conspiracy theories and moon lands and i just have to politely walk away from them and and, and not engage because you know it's it's not necessarily going to end very well if uh if you know how would the russians have not told everybody that yeah. it was a fake they would have been they were keeping such a close eye on it and and how do you keep that many people quiet i just you know it is an incredible yeah. thing it's it, you know the fact i remember, remember kevin fong saying this it was dangerous you know from front to back it was dangerous and going back again is going to be dangerous it's not just like getting on a plane and going on holiday this is a 
a massive feat of human endeavour. This was a decade of effort that went into getting human yes. beings on the moon. And when you see that, when I think that's what I liked about the Apollo 11 documentary, because it's the real footage, you realise, yes. you know, with that computer, I mean, the computer, people said the computer crashed. It didn't exactly crash. It just kind of got a bit overloaded. And we, I mean, gosh, computers do that today. Don't know how many of us have had Zoom calls that have frozen because, you know, the, the network's got overloaded. You know, it was an incredible you know thing that was in that was invented and that, that managed to get them there but it, yeah it was so dangerous and you mentioned the the apollo one fire that, that claimed the lives of three astronauts and we're going to talk about a film in a minute that you know things definitely went wrong so yeah space flight space exploration it is dangerous and it's not going to get any less dangerous and that's why it's incredible that it happened but that doesn't mean to say it didn't happen it just makes it all the more incredible that it did is, is that's what i personally think anyway so now I am really intrigued as to what your last film is. <laughs> well, this is a film that I felt like I had seen because I thought everybody's seen this film. I must have seen this film when it was out in the 1990s. And then when I watched it last night in preparation for today, I thought, I don't think I have seen this. All right. So it's, it's gone out. Of, and I think, again, it's a film like 2001. I would have remembered seeing it. And people have been saying to me for so long, how can you present an arts and science show? How can you know space and not have seen this film? I said, well, I'm interested in space. I'm interested in, in things that have happened. But I've never really got into sort of, you know, massive in science fiction. They said, this isn't science fiction. This is fact. This really happened. I said, I don't know how I haven't seen this film. Anyway, I've got it on DVD. I think my mum bought it me for a Christmas quite a few years ago and just hadn't sat down to watching it. Um, so having a bit more time on my hands at the moment, I've got a few days off and um, I'm, you know, having a, a bit of a break from lots of things. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to make some time to sit down and watch some films, watch some TV programmes, read some books. And then, yes, this is the film that I watched last night and it is Apollo 13. Okay, roger that, Houston. We'll hear from you again at acquisition of signal. You want to look? Oh, look at that. Wow. Where is that 30 seconds till loss of signal? Buzz is old neighborhood. Coming up on Mount Maryland. Jim, you gotta take a look at this. I've seen it. Aquarius, this is Houston. We expect loss of signal in approximately 10 seconds. So long, Earth. Catch you on the flip side. You know, of all the films we've talked about, it probably is now my favourite of the five that we've spoken about because it's just amazing. I'm and I'm staggered, you know, that it, it is a real story. Obviously, we know it did really happen, but yeah. So, of course, about in 1995, which was what 25 years after the real life events of Apollo 13, and this year, 2020, we are marking 50 years since um, since Apollo 13. Oh, it's a great, great film. I absolutely love it. It's so exciting. It's so nerve wracking, but it's just a, an affirmation of what human beings can do when there's a real challenge. You know, even though the challenge is a quarter of a million miles away in space, yeah. the fact that they managed, spoiler warning, they managed to bring the. Um, they did get they home. The <laughs> they did get home, yeah. It's just wonderful. And again, another great ensemble cast. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm people that you go, oh my gosh, there's Kevin Macon, there's Tom Hanks, oh, there's Gary Sinise. I'm like, well, I saw him in CSI. Obviously, he did that years after he did this film. Oh, it is, it is an inc incredible cast, isn't it? It is one of those ones where, I mean, I think Tom Hanks for me is is just outstanding. But actually, it's everybody that's in it, and Ed Harris as well. There, yeah, there's so many great people in this film. Lovell originally wanted. He, he was asked who he wanted to play him, and he said, well, I think Kevin Costner would be good because he mm. was big at the time. Mm. But then, but Tom Hanks is a huge space nut. Of course, he went on to do that TV show From the Earth to the Moon. Mm. But yes. you know, when he met Tom Hanks, the two of them got on so well together. They were, took him back to his place in his plane, and he did all the the loops and everything and and Hanks just stayed with him and he said yep yeah, I knew we were going to get on great and they did and they're still firm friends to this day 
Are they? I didn't know that. Oh, that's lovely. I like that. And of course, they're all still around, aren't they? Apart from um, Jack Swigart, the others are, are still with us, aren't they? Um, Jim Lovell and uh, and Fred Hayes, Fred Hayes. and uh, and Ken yeah. Mattingly, who I just, you know, I said I felt sorry for Michael Collins being the the loneliest person on the on the planet or off the planet. I then just felt really sorry for Ken Mattingly not being able to join, all because Charlie Duke got measles. And then, and as it turned out, Ken Matting never did get measles. No. I understand no. why they couldn't let him go. But, I mean, that's Gary Sinise playing him. And I, I just was kind of heartbroken, really, for him. There is a little bit of controversy about the film as to who stirred the oxygen tanks. In the film, mm. they showed it as Jack Swigert. And, of course, he's the only one of the three that point had passed away. Yeah, the family weren't too happy about that. According to the story that, that I read, it, nobody's exactly sure what went on in that early stage. You know, they know what the accident was in the end. Yeah. But having him do do that when he'd passed away, they felt was a bit out of order. Oh, I didn't. But know it was that. just another. It was just another event on their checklist. Yeah, I, that's I, right. I, and, it didn't even the, register with me who did it. It was just like, okay, we're going through these. This, these list of things we need to do. Oh, and we need to stir the oxygen. It doesn't matter who pressed the button. It was just another thing to yeah. do. And yeah. Yeah, these are brave men who um, oh, went on brave. an incredible journey. Mm. And the team, and that's what I like about it. If ever you want to show a film to, to people to say, this is how a team works. This is how you pull it together as a team. This is the film for that. Yeah. Yeah. And they yeah. talk about having the right stuff, don't they, to be an astronaut. And when you talk to someone like Tim Peake, you realise how calm he is and how yeah. you, yes, you have to have all of those skills. I mean, at the moment, you certainly have to know uh, Russian because of, of the way that, at the, well, we've seen with SpaceX, things are obviously changing at the moment over over in America. But generally speaking, for the last however many years, you've, you've had to go up to the International Space Station via a Russian Soyuz. So you have to be able to speak Russian, which I've spoken to people, including Tim Peake, who said that is one of the hardest things that you have to do in your astronaut training and there's all the physical stuff as well but the psychological part of it something I think that came out really well in the astronauts tv program from the BBC a couple of years ago it's called astronauts do you have what it takes Susie Imber went on to win that um, I've interviewed her just just on, on one occasion she's involved with the, the Beppe Colombo mission actually at the moment which has gone off to Mercury and she gets this letter from Chris Hadfield when the European Space Agency is, is taking on people in the future which may well help her application process but Dr Jackie Bell is also part was also part of that program she's still learning to fly helicopters at Gloucestershire airport because that's one of the challenges that they showed them having to do in the first episode of that and she decided she was going to carry on learning to fly helicopters which she was very good at the thing that let her down was she couldn't swim and you have to be able to swim because two-thirds of the earth is covered in water and there's a good chance you're going to land actually as we saw with the you know in Apollo 13 that your capsule is going to land in the water um, so you have to be able to do that and she also was learning Russian and Chinese I think as well because apparently Chris Hadfield's wife told her yes great to learn Russian but you might want to learn Chinese as well because you know Chinese space you know <laughs> program is going quite well at the moment that's pretty difficult but what you did see in that is it's those personal skills and certain personalities you can think would you want to be in a confined space with this person for however many days you know several days to take to the moon goodness if you're ever we're ever going to get to mars you're going to be with these people for a very long time those yeah. skills i think are just as important you know i think we've talked about before about neil armstrong being you know quite quiet but very calm and very focused on the job that he had to do and you you again you see that with with apollo 13 that all three of them actually you know they, they did work together as a team and you have to and then of course it's this massive team on the ground as well I didn't realize that there were people that were kind of fashioning together right this is how you make a square peg go in a round hole as the, as the saying goes they literally did yeah. come up with that and then you get and this is what I, I, I loved is you know then you get Ken Mattingly back in a simulator trying to work out okay how can we you know do this by you know, because the power obviously had to keep get going down, didn't it, in order for them to be able to conserve yeah. some power to actually get back to Earth safely. I was just, yeah, staggered. And the fact that it is, a, I mean, as you say, with a the film, there's maybe going to be some elements that are slightly embellished or slightly altered. But I think for the most part, this would have stick pretty honestly. And it, I think was, I might say, I saw, I saw on the credits that um, this was based partly on a book that Jim Lovell had written. Yes. So, you know, there's yes. a. Yeah, I mean, right. I, the other thing, and we talked about human stories and we talked about hidden figures before, and even some of the elements of First Man. The, the relationship between Jim Lovell and his wife, Marilyn, I just, I absolutely love that, that that was quite a big part of the film, actually, and that you saw a lot of her. And you, you saw this in First Man as well. That's something I did like about it, that the. 
the impact on the families of astronauts, what they go through when they go to a launch must be so incredibly tough. Watching your loved one go off, knowing that things can go wrong, that the Apollo 1 fire hadn't happened that many years beforehand. Yes, we'd landed on the moon. I mean, I also was quite surprised. And again, I knew this because I've listened to some of the 13 Minutes to the Moon podcast, the, the Apollo 13 one that, that Kevin Fong's done quite recently that the interest in the public had kind of waned. And this is only 1970. This is less than a year since we first set foot on the moon. It was, and I, I mean, I'm guessing this is true. There was a scene with um, Jim Lovell's mother in a, in a nursing home and she's waiting to watch her son on the telly. And they're like, no, they haven't. There's lovely broadcast and it, we never got to see it because they thought it wasn't interesting. And then they got interested, obviously, once everything started to go wrong. I wasn't alive, obviously, for the, uh, the Apollo programme. I was surprised to think that public interest waned that quickly. Is, is that accurate, would you think? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, um, <laughs> there's, there's a film that came out in 1978 called Capricorn One. And mm. Capricorn One is about a faked mission to, to Mars. And it's all based on this, again, was the mission to the moon fake, but they, they fake one to Mars. Hal Holbrook plays the lead NASA scientist who's faked everything. And he explains why. He said, it, we weren't ready to go. But if we didn't go, they would have cancelled the program on us, he said. And he said, when one of the Apollos, I can't remember which one he was talking about, might have been 14 or 15. He said, when when that went out, they did put some of the broadcasts on and people were jamming the networks in America, complaining they were taking off reruns of I Love Lucy to show oh, us really? to, to show uh, yeah, yeah. to show uh, a, a space mission. He said, I could have understood if it was an original uh, I Love Lucy, but a rerun? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Again, Capricorn One has its moments, but these little speeches and and things like that within the film are very clever. Yeah, yeah no, it did drop off quite considerably uh, after most people went, "Oh, Apollo Eleven, we've done that, right? Move on," which is just crazy because meant to go up to Apollo Twenty and only went up to seventeen. Yeah, so you know they they cut three out. <sighs> just so sad i mean i was a total space geek mm. watching it as a kid and and uh, you know i couldn't wait for the next mission it was incredible i stayed up most of the night making sure that they came around the back of the moon on apollo 13 and things like that it yeah. was just yeah you know, yeah, unbelievable. And the thing that the things that have come from space exploration and from the Apollo programs in terms of the technology that we have on here, whether yeah, it's mobile yes. phones or hospital scanners, and, and people forget that. And I've interviewed people who've said, you know, for every dollar that they put into the program, I think you got something like, I don't know, sixteen dollars back. It was, you know, there was a lot that you got back from from the space program, but people it is costly. We we do know that, but it's the things you get from it are incredible and you know just looking at the international space station i was talking about this with a colleague the other day you know someone like tim pete goes to the iss for six months and the things that they're doing there the experiments they're doing on the human body are just as important as everything else they're doing so they're learning about wow. what happens to your eyes and your eyesight and things yeah. like bone density which might help people who have osteoporosis here on earth so that there's a, a lot that goes into space science and space exploration that we benefit from but we probably are not really aware of that i guess what we have to remember is that the space race it was very political and once the americans had got there and beaten the russians i, I get this sense when i you know go, go back and watch things that kind of impetus of well we've done it now so why do we yeah. need to keep doing it and that even comes out doesn't it somebody questions um jim lovell in apollo 13 and says uh, you know why are we still funding this why does it still matter and, and i'm sad that those later missions didn't happen you know and I'm, I'm sad that Jim Lovell never got to go and stand on the moon you know it was mm. you know, because obviously he'd, he'd orbited hadn't he with Apollo 8 and he, he refers to yeah. that of course all of the, all of those astronauts are, are, are luckily still with us I, I do find it yeah quite sad and I, I've been to exhibitions I went to one in Brisbane actually when I was in Australia last year which had some spacesuits and things like that in it and it had some of the parts of the, the cameras and that kind of thing that they'd used up, up on, the, uh, on the, the Apollo missions and there were various things there that were meant to be for subsequent missions that obviously that never happened and I saw one oh there was a brilliant exhibition that was in Greenwich back last year which was all about the moon which was amazing again this lovely mix of arts and science that might have been actually the one that had some information about missions that that, that ended up that didn't happen and who would have been on them and that sort of thing and yeah as I said before I think we're living in a time now where we will go back to the moon in, in my lifetime I, I'm still not, not optimistic about Mars I think that is still a long way in the future but 
going back to the moon would just be incredible. Well, we'll definitely yeah. see the first woman on the moon. I'm, I know that will happen. So whether it's 2024, whether it's a bit later, I think there's a there's a lot to be, you know, still still to kind of, you know, come out of that. But it does feel for the first time to me since Apollo um, that this is we're living through quite an exciting period now. And it's great to look back and and see these films. And, and one thing I think I noticed at the end where I read some on the Internet, does Jim Lovell have a cameo in Apollo 13 or is that a bit of an urban myth? No, he does. He plays. So what the the ship that picks them up out of the ocean in the end, he, he I think he plays a captain on the. He, he has his military uniform and that back reinstated for the film. He plays captain, and I think Ron Howard says to him, "Well, no, no, you'd be the admiral." He said, "No, I was a captain. I was in the army. I'll stay a captain for this." Uh, oh, yeah. excellent. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So he's at the very end of the film. I'm going to have to go back now and, um, and rewind it and watch it just to, just to try and see him. And I need, and I say, I need to catch up on the podcast here, the uh, the second 13 minutes to the moon one. Because I heard the first episode, and I know that the, the end of it got a bit delayed again because of the pandemic. Because Kevin Fong um, is in is a doctor, is a, is a real life um, doctor and anaesthetist. So I know he got seconded to go and work with uh, with a hospital because of the pandemic. So I think they have just finished it now. So that's something uh, that's on BBC Sounds um, to catch up on when you get to hear. You know, the, the the incredible story. Sometimes these things, you know, do feel that they are almost unbelievable. How can these things have, have really happened? And, and the human endeavour and the teamwork that we've mentioned before. So Apollo 13 is definitely going in my top 10 films of all time now, not just my top 10 space films. It's definitely my, I think it's now my, my favourite Glad that I got to see it before we had our chat because I knew I would enjoy it. And I, and I kept, when I was watching it thinking, no, I don't think I have seen this before. I remember it coming out in 1995, but obviously you know didn't go and see it at the cinema at the time I you know I was a teenager then probably that interested at the time I'll be honest but yeah glad I've got to see it now well thank you very much for sharing you. your um top five films with us and it's a great discussion as well I do appreciate that Joe. oh you're um, very welcome thank you for inviting me sorry I can talk oh. for England so you know <laughs> no no it's great and um what I would recommend is uh obviously everything we've spoken about sort of on the YouTube uh about the science festival Hopefully, we will see the return of Beautiful Universe in the not-too-distant future because yeah. we're missing it. And I would urge you to check out Joe on Twitter. I think, Joe, some of your really positive tweets you send out, certainly at this time, have been yeah. really helpful. I forwarded them on to my family as well. Can I thank you personally for that? that that's wonderful. Oh, that's very kind of you, Jeff. Yeah, I've taken a little bit of a, a social media uh, break in the last few days, but I, I will be back. Don't worry. Um, just just having a little bit of downtime at the moment. But no, I really, really, it's really kind of you to say because sometimes you, you know, I, I just say things that they mean something to me, or it's something that I, you know, think is kind of a. Uh, it's difficult, isn't it? In, in the in the age that we're living in, and the times that we're living in, to try and find glimmers of positivity and gratitude, which is something I try to do each day. But I'll be honest, I don't, I don't succeed every day, but I'm glad that the things I've shared that you've, you've appreciated. Um, oh, so definitely. no, that's my yeah, pleasure. Yeah, it's nice of you to say. Hopefully we'll catch up on a classic film Friday in the not too distant future. Oh, when things yes. are back to normal. Well, are back- I think I could almost exclusively reveal, because I've been told it's, it's pretty much likely to happen, that I think it will be the August bank holiday. I am going to be doing a music from the movies of which you are both going to be invited to be part of that. So I will be in touch with you in due course, but I'm just waiting for the final sign-off from the the powers that be. But I've been been told, I've got it on pretty, like 90% certain that that's going to happen because that would have happened. We were going to do that on the, the last bank holiday in May, and obviously lots of other things were going on the last bank holiday in May when my programme would have been on air. So all being well, the August bank holiday is what we're looking at at the moment. So, yeah, special, another special one-off programme, but where we talk about favourite film music and that sort of thing. So um, if you're both still up for being involved in that, then um, we will we will touch oh, base. Oh, definitely. You're, you're talking my language. Show it's yeah. been a, a real pleasure. And I look forward to when we next meet face to face. Yes. Hopefully Thank you very, much, very soon. Thanks. Thank you both very much. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>